Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guests today are Scott Eaton, who earlier this year became CEO of Nivora, a business whose stated mission is to use digitized data and digital technology to cut time, cost and risk out of the bond issuance process. And he's joined by Dr. Vic Arulchandran, co-founder at Nivora. Scott, Vic, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, Scott, perhaps I could, I could start with you. The flagship product at Nivora, which is called Aurora, aims to automate the primary debt capital market flows, the bond markets, the flows between issuers, dealers, investors, exchanges, ratings agencies, even, and lawyers, of course. Uh, now, that sounds like uh, I've described the problem very clearly, but what, what is the, the detailed nature of the problem which, which Aurora is actually addressing? Well, you actually have done a great job of describing the problem. And what we're really trying to address is, is a couple of things. Bring a fairly outdated process into the 21st century. Um, I started out my career working on bond deals 30 plus years ago. And the way bond deals are done today is the same way it was done then and the 10 years prior to that. So um, what we're really trying to do is digitize the process. So make it so it's streamlined and efficient, but also enable the capturing of data. So a lot of the stuff gets keyed in twice. You have a bunch of different actors that don't need to. Um, workflows get emailed back and forth between the players as opposed to perhaps simultaneously worked on and collaborated on. And those are the sorts of problems we're looking to fix. So it's about efficiency, it's about data, um, and it's about then having a process which is replicable and ultimately becomes um, an on-ramp, an off-ramp for future uh, fully DLT type transactions. Well, I'm glad you mentioned DLT and we'll, we'll, we'll come to this possibly a bit later, but it sounds very much as though what you're aiming at is a kind of classic blockchain model in which all the parties to a transaction are, are seeing the data simultaneously and can rectify and add to and solve problems simultaneously as well. Would that be a reasonable characterization? I think that's a very reasonable characterization. And in fact, if, if you think about it, you know, the history of, of Navora starts with the FCA sandbox and, and um, Avtar and Vic, the, the two of the co-founders, recognizing that DLT had an application in bond issuance. And they went through and they were the first to ever do a digital bond issuance um, and did it in a regulated fashion. Uh, so I think absolutely, you know, what, what the guys found, and, and I'm sure we'll cover this a little bit later, is that it was a great idea. They could prove that it worked and they could do it within a regulated framework. However, I think what they recognized was that at the moment, the regulatory framework beyond just the FCA sandbox is really not there. You have various rules, CSDR being one of them, that keep it from being really something that works for a soup to nuts DLT approach. And then alongside that, you also have the fact that the buy side really just isn't geared up for that and nor are some of the infrastructure players. So I think that's what's interesting in my mind is that you can start and still have that as your thought, but Navora and in particular Avtar and Vic we're smart enough to say, okay, look, we can't keep going down that path. We need to actually put a framework in place, which will allow people kind of a stepping stone to get there, which is the Aurora software. Mm -hmm. um, Vic, you've been there since, since the, the beginning. Uh, we talk about debt capital markets and bond markets as if they are a, a monolithic 
marketplace. But in fact, there are lots of different types of debt, aren't there? There's bonds, there's medium term notes, there's commercial paper, there's even old fashioned certificates of deposit. So which asset classes uh, does this model that you built, the Aurora model, support at the moment? Um, we, we realized early on um, that while there are a number of different instruments we could be supporting in the long term, we wanted to, we need to start with the sort of low hanging fruits, um, get our technology built out and embedded with few, few customers, and then expand on the complexity of instruments that the product could support. So we chose to go with something that was program based, um, high volume, you know, that we felt we could automate the issuance of from the beginning. So we went with MTNs, specifically MT EMTNs in Europe. Um, so these are again program-based instruments. Um, the law firm set up a program at the beginning, whole host of documents, and then every time there's a drawdown, they take um, a couple of documents from there and they negotiate on the term sheets and they fill in the final terms and they execute. So what we did is we thought, okay, let's not start from too early on creating documents, but let's start from digitizing those documents once they're created and then allowing these digitized documents to be used for drawdowns whenever an issuer wants to do an issuance. Um, and so we started there. We've also started working on things like swaps, structured products as well. Uh, we actually did some structured products issuances a couple of years ago. We have a client in Asia now who's deployed our technology to do commercial paper and certificates of deposit. So we're gradually, now that, we, now that we've got the product built out and we're getting it, you know, sort of every single piece of the functionality production ready, we're going to then expand into different instruments and more complex ones like structured products. Have you, I'm sure Scott has a view on this as well, but have you, Vic, worked out how big the, the markets which you're going to address are? You, you've described very clearly, you're starting with MTNs for a very good reason that they have these periodic drawdowns. It's a good way of testing what you've built. And I guess bonds are, are kind of less active, aren't they? But from what you're saying, there's no reason why the, the technology shouldn't apply to um, fixed income instruments and floating rate instruments of all kinds. Is that, is that right? How big is the market going to be, do you think? you added it all up it's it's actually so <laughs> i cheated i i begged one of these earlier so according to the oecd um average annual issuance in the corporate bond market has been running at roughly 1.8 trillion dollars a year and that's non-financials and so what i think is particularly interesting and i couldn't find the number for financial institutions but if you think theoretically we could do all corporate bond issuance once the product builds out all the way um, that's 1.8 trillion as a potential market. You add in the um, what financial issuance is because there's no reason that a bank couldn't choose to do it this way. In particular, um, the structured products program. So uh, years ago, I ran a desk that was all about repackaging bond issuance, combining a derivative with an underlying asset and then issuing a note. And that's the sort of stuff that's really easily done off a cellular issuance program, which is effectively just an MTN program. So the market is probably, you know, two and a quarter trillion per year in terms of total addressable market. And we would be happy with a with a sliver, a large sliver, but a sliver. But am I, am I right to think that you're, uh, oddly enough, I know the, the outstandings in the, in the secondary market, the total fixed income market, because I looked at the SIFMA uh, mm. yearbook the other day, it was like 94 trillion uh, US dollars globally. And I'm sure that even that's probably an underestimate. Um, but I guess your your service is kind of irrelevant to the to the secondary market. Your primary market focus means you've got nothing to offer the secondary market. Am I wrong about that? No, I think I think you're you're right in principle, right? So the product itself lends itself to or is designed just for primary issuance. 
But I think ultimately um, what becomes interesting is anytime you digitize stuff, you then have a real usable data trail that, that can be analyzed, cut up, other things done to it. So it probably has value and relationships to the secondary market. At the moment, I, I don't know what that might be, but I always think about that data trail as always feeding um, various end users and those end users being secondary traders. Yeah, well, pricing uh, new bonds, one thing, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, Vicar, a, a, um, a technical question about, about that question of price. In fact, um, the, the primary market is going to consume and indeed generate a lot of price sensitive information, quite a lot of confidential information about which corporates are issuing, which type of debt and prompt all sorts of questions about why they are. How do you keep this data secure? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, again, from the beginning, when we when we started developing the company and the you know the idea from from the ideation stage, we knew that simply providing a, a solution in the cloud wasn't going to be enough to address all of the problems in the industry. Uh, problems around data integrations, um, owning uh, owning platforms, etc. So we wanted to make sure from day one that when we built the solution out, which we have done, that it could be deployed both in the cloud and on private cloud or on-premises. And that's because we know, you know, from what from our experience in banking before we started the company, and of course, from talking to customers and potential customers over the last few years, we know how important it is that banks and various other firms have total control over the data they're creating and managing. So having solutions, for example, we can take our product and we can deploy it on-premises or on-cloud for our clients. It can then tap into their internal databases and store information there. So they then have total control over the data that's being created within their ecosystem. Uh, we also, of course, use um, various methods of encrypting data, both at rest and in transit. Uh, and we have been also working under the philosophy of something called zero trust architecture. So we're really thinking about how every single piece of data on any of our systems, any of our products, no matter whether it's deployed in the cloud or on premises, can be kept safe and secure and private and can be given very granular access and permissions to different types of users. And that's one of the key things that we've kept in, in principle when we developed our solution. Now, Vic, you've just said that the customer has complete control over their own data. You know, it, it, it's private. They have to give consent to it being used. A minute ago, we were talking to, uh, Scott and I were talking about how valuable that, that data is, say even secondary market data to, to participants in the, in, the, in the bond markets. So is, is there a contradiction there? Is there a problem there between giving the customers full ownership and control of their data and the fact that uh, if you aggregated lots of people's data, you would actually have something very interesting and very useful to everybody else. I'm not saying this problem is peculiar to, to the capital markets. It's clearly becoming an issue across all sorts of businesses throughout um, the economy, but is it, is it a, does it place some kind of constraint on your, on your growth? The fact that you have to say, well, this is your data. It belongs to you. I have to ask you if I'm going to use it. Vic, I was thinking it might be a question yeah, for you. Sure. Um, it, it is an interesting one. I think you can separate the technical side of it from the commercial side of it. So technically we need to ensure our solution manages data appropriately, uh, and we can ensure that we help our customers have control over the data. 
On the other hand, commercially, um, there are many other solutions in the market, like the data aggregators and, and sellers, who will pull in data from various places, not just buying data, but they scrape the web, they perform analysis, then they use it and they sell it on. Um, we're in the business of supporting our customers who are trying to create instruments and develop these very, very, you know, digitize their existing manual processes and have a very quick way of creating and executing instruments. And that's our core focus. There are also other commercial things we, get, we are considering around how the data is used in our system, but we're at the heart of it. We're not a data uh, analytics business. We are a, a workflow automation, low code, no code solution company. And, and that's our core focus. Uh -huh. And this might be a stupid question, but, but there you are providing a, a workflow automation service. <laughs> how hard is it to use? Do, do you have to be able to work with Python and other codes in order to, to work with the system or is it uh, deliberately designed for even uh, everyday lawyers to use? Um, yeah, again, like when we started the company, we, we wanted to make sure that ultimately anybody using our solution could use it quite easily and configure it without needing to be a programmer. I think that's the key thing here. Um, and we've seen over the last couple of years, um, this movement starting called low code, no code movement, which is effectively a product being built that can be provided to people to then configure and fit together to create business models and businesses with almost zero programmers and programming experience. Um, and it's a journey. So it's not something that can be achieved immediately. It's a very complex thing to solve. Um, but we're on the journey there. So there are aspects of our solution that can be configured um, through the front end by an, an end user without programming experience. There's some aspects of our solution that still requires a little bit of understanding of how to edit files like a JSON file. So you need a little bit of programming experience there. Where we want to get to, which will take a couple of years, is, is full, full no-code, um, low-code, no-code. So mm -hmm. literally ensuring that we have a product which is kind of like, you know, Lego. And clients can put all this Lego together, these modules, services, et cetera, very, very easily, and then just take it and deploy it wherever they want and run, run a business, run a process, generate workflows that they need. That's where we want to get to. I think this is also beneficial for technology teams within banks and market infrastructure and law firms because they're, ha they're having to spend a lot of time um, performing due diligence on different solutions, understanding how to do the configurations and customizations and manage it. But actually, if they didn't need to worry about the business level things that need to be done on the solution, they can worry more about maintaining it, uh, performing operations on it, providing support, and actually then integrating and managing and creating other solutions that can interact with it. Yeah. Lego, Lego 1.0, at least the one with the bricks. Some of these yeah. new Lego models look extremely complicated and non-standardized to me, but I know exactly what you mean. Um, Scott. Uh, you joined uh, Nivora, I think, earlier this year. Uh, something must have attracted you, but it's become obvious to us that Future of Finance is actually becoming quite a crowded field. Um, we've got Agora, we've got CapEx Move, both when we've spoken to, there's Origin Markets. Uh, there's even that the long-established business of, of Iprio, which started to develop investor capabilities uh, a few years ago. Uh, now, all of them clearly see the primary debt market process as ripe for automation. Uh, Scott, what did you, what persuaded you that, that, that Nivora was, was the right answer? And what do you think is going to determine adoption of, uh, of the solution over the next few years? 
So it's an interesting question because um, exactly as you point out, right, getting to choose, which is a wonderful luxury about where you spend your time. Um, what attracted me to Navora was the fact that um, like all early companies, the founders are passionate. So I thought that was interesting, but that's probably true of all the companies you just mentioned. But what I thought was particularly interesting for me, and it's, it's a bit um, odd given that I am a poor technologist, um, but is I like the idea that they started in one spot, very tech heavy DLT, which I often characterized as a cool technology in search of a problem to fix. I think they identified exactly where it could be used and could be used credibly. They did so, as I mentioned earlier, in that regulated framework, which is also critical because as much as we like to apply new technology and new thinking to financial services, financial services is heavily regulated. It's arguably the most conservative place to operate. Why? Well, because it's your money, it's my money. Governments wanna keep that safe. So consequently, being able to introduce new things in that framework, you have to be able to do it showing that you can apply the rules and do so. So I was very attracted by the fact that they had started in um, the FCA sandbox with the DLT product. And then I also really appreciated that pivot into something which was more usable today and not waiting for the future. Um, so that was what really attracted me to Navora. And that's certainly not to take away from any of the other firms you mentioned. I know some of them very well and I'm hugely impressed by their, their offering as well. Um, but I do think that there's also a difference. I it, it feels like, at least to me, that the workflow tool is different than a, than a market-driven tool. So we're less about creating a place for those bonds to trade, notwithstanding the fact that we have deployed a product that's based on our core code to LSAG, uh, London Stock Exchange Group. It, but that product isn't about trading. So I think that, that the, the answer is there's room for more than one operator. Ours is very much focused on the workflow element of it. Um, and I think that the way winners will arise is through both delivering value for money. So that we actually do address the problems that we think are there and that we've identified both on our own, but through conversations with clients. Um, but also that the product itself is flexible enough to deal with what the future may look like. And, and I know you're a passionate reader, as we were discussing before this. Um, many of the things, you know, many of the philosophers will point out that, um, that humans are particularly bad at judging the speed at which innovation occurs, um, particularly in the near term. And I definitely fall into that. So I think people are beginning to look for technology which can both address today's problem, but also address tomorrow's problem because we don't know how fast tomorrow is coming. Should I be surprised you didn't mention network effects as being important to the rate of adoption? You mentioned value for money, but having people on the network, how important is that going to be? I think that's, that's important really for, um, for an ultimate vision of, you know, these platforms connected and talking to each other. But in many ways, I, I think the solution, and, and Vic, you can jump in and correct me where I'm wrong or, or add to it, but is, you know, each instance of Aurora can work very well. So when I think about it, because of my background um, in banks, um, I think of it as a tremendous workflow tool as you sit at the desk and you're trying to manage the process. You're a, you're a debt capital markets originator, loan syndicate, or you are a, um, or you're the risk officer associated with looking at it. The fact that I can then be part of that process throughout really only needs, you know, my bank, bank ABC to own the platform. It doesn't really require that another player own the platform as well, because they can, they can attach to it when we're working on it. I don't know, Vic, did you, do you have something that 
No, that's 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 absolutely right. Um, and we've also focused on ensuring that we are building our product with interoperability in mind as well, because we know that some some processes and operations have existed for years and years, right? Sometimes twenty to fifty years in banking, and we don't want to come in with a, a technology and a product and say, "Here's a big bang change, change everything that you're doing now," because there there, has, there, have, there are repercussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we wanted to do was say, "Look, we understand your challenges." And every day we're gaining an even deeper understanding of those challenges. We want to provide you with technology that you can use immediately to solve some of these, but also that we can work together on in the longer term to solve the rest of the challenges you're having. And so we've got something which they can deploy and use straight away, but also their customers can interact with it both on the platform, but also off. We've got tools that we've been developing around offline communication. So the platform, the, the product automatically sending messages out through an email, receiving responses back. That requires the person on the other side to not have to change anything they're doing. We've also been developing uh, capabilities around data extraction. So data coming in doesn't have to always be structured. It can be unstructured. It could be in the document or PDF formats that they currently are in. Our solution can still extract that data and insert it into the workflow. So for us, interoper- interoperability, not just from the perspective of making APIs available for everyone to connect in. But actually interoperability means allowing information to be shared with our solutions through existing channels, email, PDF, et cetera. And that's very, very important. Avik, I'd like to, to, to clear one thing up. Scott has pointed out that uh, one of the reasons Nivora was attractive to him is because it clearly understood how to operate in the regulated space. He referred to the fact you began in in the FCA sandboxes. And I think that's how a lot of us um, remember the origins of, of Nibora, operating in those sandboxes, tokenizing bonds on blockchain, issuing cryptocurrency-backed bonds uh, on Ethereum, working with London Stock Exchange on, on equity settlements on the, on the blockchain, make, proving all those things work. And as Scott has indicated earlier in this conversation, uh, you know, Nibora clearly started thinking that blockchain was, was the right answer. But in the end, you've, you've pivoted, uh, as he said, to um, to the, the conventional sort of on-premises cloud-based options, which you, Vic, described earlier. What does this tell us about what, what Navora really thinks about blockchain now? Is it kind of all over for you uh, between Navora and blockchain, or is it, are you kind of waiting for the technology to get to the point where it becomes um, something practical and useful that people can use in their offices today? Um, I think a blockchain or a distributed ledger solution, it could take many different shapes. Um, but ultimately, we never expected or thought that a blockchain could disintermediate everybody in banking and could replace all of the technology infrastructure. What we were doing with our sandbox experiments, sandbox one to four, one to five actually, was we were feeling around to see what the blockchain could actually do and not do. Um, I think one of the great successes that we had was we, as a, we, got, we became regulated within the sandboxes. We got restricted permissions, which were then lifted. And those permissions, MIFID and CAS, allowed us to uh, issue bonds that were also tokenized on public blockchains. So we used Bitcoin and we used Ethereum. And they were done in a legally compliant way. So in fact, the Ethereum issuances, where we issued uh, tokenized and crypto-denominated bonds on Ether, they were both legally compliant. They had legal documentation around them. They were the first, world's first legally compliant tokenized and cryptocurrency denominated issuances. Uh, And we did those within the existing regulatory framework. We didn't need there to be any 
changes of how instruments are understood and managed. And so that showed, we showed that under English law and regulation here, bonds can be issued in, uh, in under the regulatory environment, they can be issued and tokenized. Um, the key thing though is this, the technology we used is while we used a public blockchain, we were still developing products that could do all of the pre-work and then execute and create a tokenized bond. And that's the key thing. Um, there was so much tension over the blockchain side of things, which was a lot of fun and very, very important. But actually in order to create an instrument on any infrastructure, whether it's a, a distributed, decentralized or centralized infrastructure, you need to have some kind of workflow solution that people are interacting with to create the instrument. Creating that instrument means creating the legal documents, agreeing on the price, blah, 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 signing off, then sending data to a registration system. So while we were doing all this stuff in the sandboxes, what we were actually really focused on apart from that was building out the core product. And so we used those sandboxes as a way to prototype different things that we would need in that workflow solution, as well as experimenting with novel ways to register and transact tokenized securities. And so I'm quite pleased with the, the, some of the groundbreaking stuff we did in the sandboxes. Um, we put them on pause for a couple of years because I think we were a bit too early. The infrastructure didn't catch up by that stage. And it was very, very difficult to move forward and do more experiments with larger firms um, and encouraging them to use a blockchain. Now things have changed in the last two years. Now we've seen large infrastructure firms, the likes of State Street and Bank of New York invest in um, blockchain companies. But you know, I can tell you when we first opened our custody accounts with Bank of New York, we had to present to a whole variety of people there. We were the first blockchain company to interact with them at that stage. Uh, and we were able to open accounts, but it took about six months to do so. Now, you know, it would be really quickly. And the fact that they've invested, it shows how far they've come and how far the industry has come in the last two years. Now, separate to that, you still need some kind of solution deployed somewhere that can do all this work up front. Maybe in the medium to long term, all of that can move onto a blockchain, but we're not there yet. So it's very important to kind of differentiate Here's, here's a solution or a number of solutions that people are going to interact with to create instruments. That interaction can come directly through to the solution or through a centralized or distributed network. Then once the instruments are created, they can either be put into the existing system, so through the IPAs, CSEs, et cetera, or they could be put onto a, a distributed system with those entities potentially on there as well, providing governance and, and support services. So uh, I think it's quite, it's quite a complex thing to get around, but in short, we haven't put the blockchain stuff to the side. We paused it because we wanted to make sure the industry was catching up as well. We still think there's a huge uh, potential for the use of this kind of technology in, in capital markets in the long term. And we really are, you know, one, one part of our, our focus in the, in the future will be to use a, use a blockchain or use a distributed network with some core partners. Just so I'm, Vic, so I'm absolutely clear about what you're saying here. The reason you pivoted away from from blockchain or put it on pause, as you say, is because the industry wasn't ready to adopt it. There was no, in your mind, no fundamental engineering obstacle to its adoption. And I'm thinking here particularly of, of scalability. Um, so I, I think for us as a, as a startup, we go through this journey of finding product market fit. So we do a bunch of different things. We take the good from all of those dissect the bad, and then try to combine them into a core product. And so we, we decided that core product that we go to market with ha has to be this Aurora solution, this workflow, low-code, no-code product that can generate traditional instruments 
but also in the longer term plug into a, a distributed or decentralized infrastructure. So that was for us one, one, one aspect of the thinking was let's just focus on the thing that is going to be the most value add in the next few years. The other aspect is yes, to put it on pause because we needed to ensure that the rest of the industry could catch up. By the time we got into Sandbox 5, we were in Sandbox 5 with two infrastructure firms, a listing, a listing venue, an, an exchange and a CSD. And we could not reach an agreement on how to proceed and what to use and how to do it because it was just, at that time, we're talking two, two and a bit years ago, <clears throat> the thinking hadn't matured enough across these organizations because they're so big. But times have changed, right? Now, two years later, we're seeing lots of market infrastructure firms getting into experimenting with um, yeah. this, kind of, this kind of technology. So the time is the time is quite right now, I think, for us and for other companies to again bring the bring the blockchain aspect back into the core solution. Right. So it's the, the the obstacle is commercial. It's not it's not an engineering obstacle ultimately. There are some engineering obstacles, to be honest. But if we're looking at primary issuance, I don't think you know technically volumes are not really the issue. I think the main obstacles are more commercial and business focused yeah. and information security and that kind of stuff. I think infosec and you know. Uh, I think te technology, the tech is novel. Um, it's really, really interesting. There's lots of developments being made um, on networks like Ethereum and Corda. But in my my personal opinion, I don't think technology has been the major challenge in the last five years. It's been business. Right. Okay. Well, that's clear. Thank you, Vic. Now, um, Scott, you're you're the legal expert at, at, at the firm, and and one piece of IP which Nibora did develop and has now made open source is the general legal markup language, the GLML. Can you tell us how that works? Sure. Well, I can tell you a little bit about it. Vic is really the brainchild, uh, or is is the the father of that. Um, but it, it's basically a, a taxonomy um, that the firm developed, and the real goal behind it is to not have multiple standards. Um, in terms of how you interpret, you know, what constitutes you know, bond price or coupon or, you know, floating rate. And the idea is to bring it all into a single, everyone agrees nomenclature. Um, and that's, that's really also why we put it in the foundation. Uh, because the idea is if it's too tied to a firm, then of course, you know, your competitors won't use it. Hard to get other industry bodies behind it. And, and that's really, I think that's key generally to the whole process of digitization. You know, to, to make an analogy, if we go back and look at the, um, the requirements under MIFID 2 for data being available effectively free to air price data um, 15 minutes after a trade, everybody seems to have it in a slightly different format. It's, it's you know, you have to scrub a bunch of different places to find it. And now uh, four or five years after MIFID II going live, three years, however many years it's been, sorry. Um, but is, is the idea that now uh, the European Commission is having to go back and rewrite the regulation such that it forces a, um, a bond tape, a, a, a trace-like tape for those prices. And that was something that we wanted to, to address as well with GLML is get everybody to agree what that standard is, because then everybody will use, will hopefully use and move to a digitized standard. And as I think Vic said earlier, you know, one of the things that we, that we were thinking about in the Aurora um, product itself was we didn't want to force people to use our version of the world. So by releasing GLML into the wild, as it were, the idea is that, look, you know, you could you can access that language and use it on Origins platform as an example, or on the Agora platform. And so the idea is really just to make it a standard. Um, Vic, I don't know if you want to have something to add to that since you are the guy who came up with it all. 
Um, I mean, GLML came up, well, we, we sort of came up with the idea in reaction to some of the things we had heard from lawyers you know, four or five years ago. Because we were thinking, if we're going to create a solution that can facilitate the creation of financial instruments in a, in a more digitized, automated way, we needed to figure out how to structure the data from the beginning, like create, create structured digital data right from the beginning. And so in our hunt to look for that information, we thought there are programs, prospectuses that law firms create. They're doing these in Microsoft Word. They're sharing them. People are typing in those markups, et cetera. Is there a way for us to just put a digitized framework around that and then use that to generate workflows? And, and so that was one of the key things we were thinking about. And I remember going through a couple of one documents and just thinking to myself, why am I doing this? I shouldn't be the one doing this, right? I don't, have, I don't know anything about law. I'm a mathematician at heart. I'm a liability and everything else. So we were thinking, why can't we just figure some way out to give a tool to the lawyers to use themselves, the experts in the documents, to be able to digitize those docs themselves. So we started talking to the law firms. And every single lawyer we talked to would say, They'd love to do that. You know, they, they like the provision. It made sense. They'd love to do it. The only problem is every time they've tried initiatives, because of these law firms, they've tried, a lot of the law firms by that stage had tried to digitize and automate how they assemble documents. And every time everybody said to us, look, we've had to work with technical teams and we've had to tell programmers what to do, or we've had to learn how to code a bit. And it just ends up becoming so long and complicated that we never really get any efficiency and so it's better for us to just go back to drafting and managing documents the normal way because it saves us time and we're familiar with it. So that's why we thought, look, we need to create something very simple. And we took influences from languages like Python. Um, we also took influence from a, a typesetting software called LaTeX, which we use in academia. Um, and we kind of put a few things together and came up with a syntax for GLML. And you know, as Scott said, there's there's a there's an import there's a need for uh, the creators of this data to agree on a particular data standard. So to agree that if I put um, this tag, this syntax into a document, it needs to mean a particular thing to everybody. So there's a need to agree on that. There's a need to have a shared syntax that everybody can understand. The GLML is so easy for anyone to understand. You look at a tag, you look at the logic that can be written through GLML, it's very easy. You don't have to be a programmer to get it. Um, and so that was the, those were the two core aspects, creating something that a lawyer could put into a document really easily, but also making sure everyone understood that underpinning that there needs to be a taxonomy of data points that everyone agrees to as well. At that stage, and even now, there, there have been so many different data standards in capital markets. There are new ones being created probably every couple of months at this, at this stage, each one purporting to, to challenge, you know, tackle a different part of the process, a different challenge, etc. But actually GLML is the first data standard that can be input into documents where the data begins in the first place by the legal experts who create those documents. I think this is really key. Once that's been put into the documents, GLML can be mapped to any other data standard. So if different solutions or different companies are using a system that requires a different data standard um, on that system, they can very easily map from a structured data document that's written in GLML to any other data type. And that's why GLML is actually an enabler for the entire industry to create more digitized and streamlined workflows. That was the point of GLML. And as Scott said, this is why we put it into a foundation and made it open spec because we really believe in it. We really believe in the ability for GLML to actually defragment 
the data standard problems in capital markets and enable not just us, but a whole host of other companies to then create more um, digitized and automated solutions using the data that's digitized right at the beginning. Um, and so GLMN has a really big purpose there. It's, I think it's a bigger purpose than what Nivora is doing. It needs to be driven by the market. We've handed it over. It needs to be driven by the market and owned by the market in order to be successful. And we hope it is, but at least we think it's on the right track. Uh, and that, that right track, Scott, I mean, um, Vic's been pretty clear, you know, you need agreement, needs adoption, the industry needs to start using it. Uh, how confident are you that, that GLML can become a kind of industry standard for digitizing documents? I'm reasonably confident. Um, look, there are always going to be hiccups. And, and as Vic mentioned, you know, there it seems like there's a new standard born um, every couple of months trying to address you know, some specific aspect. And we see it and have seen it over time. I, I think that the good news is, at least in the early days of the foundation, we've seen a lot of engagement from industry. You know, we've got um, a handful of the Magic Circle law firms as part of the, as part of the foundation. Um, a bunch of different actors in the market generally have been um, part and parcel and have been on the calls with the foundation. So I'm, I'm hopeful and reasonably confident that in fact, the uptake will be good. And I think one of the things that was very um, prescient, very forward thinking uh, of Vic and the team was to start at that point of where lawyers start, which is funny enough with a Word document, right? Lawyers are about as habit, um, as habit built as, as traders are. Having, having sat in both of those seats, you tend to get used to one way of doing things and that's the way you wanna go back and do it. And starting with a Word document, and you know they've, they've uh, engineered a, a Word plugin, which we will release um, in the next quarter at there thereabouts to the to the foundation once we've perfected the Word plugin, um, that will make it even easier for lawyers to actually GLML the documents associated with the bond offering. Um, so I think it's I think it's pretty exciting. My fingers are crossed that it'll it'll all go the right way. Yeah, well, it's never easy to get people to adopt a standard. Could I just clear up one thing? Uh, is uh, GLML uh, jurisdiction agnostic or is it English law only? It's jurisdiction agnostic. Um, you know, just like code is, code is jurisdiction ag agnostic as well. Um, I mean, the GLML is really for non-programmers to digitize a normal document. doesn't matter what jurisdiction or even language it's in. Uh, we're looking at supporting other law firms and legal teams to GLML German documents, uh, even some documentation in Asia as well. Um, so yeah, GLML is not, not restricted to even right. the industry in the long term. Yeah, now, now you've said, uh, Vic, there's a lot of unstructured information out there. You've both said there are multiple standards appearing to solve particular problems in particular areas. Uh, would it help adoption of GLML if it could be mapped in some way to other existing widely used standards like fix and fpml and, and swift or is that irrelevant to, to the success of gll i think it's very important um, we've actually been working on some of this already so we've we've uh, been internally we've already done some mappings to fix protocol um, and you know fix of course used especially for data transaction or data transfer between systems uh, we're also heavily looking at how the gll could support the adoption of cdm the common domain model um, developed by ISDA and, and also in conjunction with ICMA now as well. 
Uh, and so we're looking at how GLML can actually drive the adoption of things like CDM by allowing CDM to be expressed and written into legal documents really, really easily by law firms and lawyers using GLML and the word plugin. Um, and again, remember that the reason why all these data standards are being created and developed is firstly because all of the manual effort to create data points is people typing stuff into systems. It all starts by people looking at a legal document and typing stuff into that legal document, whether it's a, a term sheet or final terms or something else. And so by digitizing that, you're actually solving a lot of the problems downstream to begin with. The other thing is as well, ownership. People, a lot of companies are competing on data standards too, which is a challenge in the industry. And one of the reasons why we put GLML into the foundation and we have engaged with firms who are competitive, not just to each other, but also to Nevora, because we want to show that for this to really take off and for the whole industry to benefit from a data standard, everybody has to get on board with it. It's not just about a couple of firms developing something over there and then other ones going over there and creating another standard. Everyone has to be on the same page this time. Otherwise, um, fragmentation will continue. Now, Vic, I noticed that you're also on the ISO 20022 working group at, at ISSA. Where does that standard, that ISO 20022, fit into what you're, you're doing? I, um, you know, I'm a big fan of ISSA. I joined, uh, we joined a little while ago when the new CEO uh, took over and they've been doing a great job before that and especially now uh, on engaging with security services firms in the industry, understanding what these firms need um, and then going and doing the research and, and publishing suggestions and um, educating the members. Um, I've, I've been trying to, tried to get involved mainly on the DLT side because that's where our, our expertise, DLT and issuance side is of course, uh, the majority of where our expertise comes from and, and where we can contribute. But of course, recently I've also been able to contribute a little bit on the ISO uh, standards side as well. So um, I'm supporting um, two of the groups there on DLT and ISO uh, around the understanding, again, this is around data and data standardization, uh, but as well as um, uh, identification of instruments. Um, one of the challenges now is that now that tokenized instruments are becoming more prevalent and lots of different companies are creating their own versions of DLTs, networks, instruments, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The challenge is how do you identify what is a financial instrument and how do you share that identification of that financial instrument? So of course, traditionally you've got ISINs and QCIPs, you know, for, for international instruments. But what do you have for a blockchain uh, tokenized instrument? Uh, huh. A lot of work has been done by ANA, uh, the numbering organization, a few other firms who have come together and created industries um, but also on the ISO side um, there's a lot of work that's been done around understanding existing business processes uh, describing how messaging should be done between different systems etc but there's actually very little overlap between those two and now that I've I've been supporting uh, bringing the two groups together with ISA, we can actually see how little overlap there has been today so quite an inter inter interesting thing that's happening there is an investigation into the, the data standards and the identification of instruments and the identification of business processes required to create those instruments uh, is now becoming a cross-collaborative uh, piece. So yeah, very, very, very interesting times there. Stupid question for you, Vic. Can GLML fit into ISO 20022 or does it need uh, to be adjusted? Um, GLML can be aligned with ISO standards in general. Uh, I believe it already is. Um, but it's something that we will be working on uh, in the actual foundation working groups over the next year or two. 
uh, ISO 2022. I just call it ISO 22 for short, to be honest. Uh -huh. um, it is. It has not achieved wide industry adoption yet, anyway. So mm -hmm. um, it's it's just because while a number of firms have agreed to it, um, it is very difficult to adopt something straight away. So yeah. there is still a bit of time. Um, and GLML, it's very important for GLML to the syntax and the taxonomy itself is agnostic to other standards and um, uh, you know um, you know industry bodies suggesting how to put information together. It's really the next step after that. So once you have a syntax that everybody can use and you have a taxonomy that everyone agrees on and it's aligned with other standards, how do you then put these two things together and uh, put together messages that are aligned with global standards? Um, and that's the piece we want to look at in the foundation. It shouldn't, shouldn't be a complex thing. It should be quite straightforward because of the nature of the way GLML has been created. Right. Okay, that's clear. Scott. Uh, Navora has this uh, history with, with the London Stock Exchange, right back to those um, uh, sessions in the sandbox, as it were, and it's clearly the flagship client of, of, of Navora today, it's the main user of Aurora. Are you doing anything else with the London Stock Exchange Group apart from the Aurora workflow product? Well, at the moment, um, that is our core product with them. Uh, it's called Flow. We work with them regularly on developing that further. So new features um, and, and also marketing to clients, their clients, our clients. Um, so we continue to work with them. And what's really fun, at least for me, um, in having LSEG as a partner, both as a client and an investor in Navora is that their door is always open. They're, they're willing to have any and all conversations, both around the product itself, how it develops, where we should be thinking about product improvement, but also about you know, more future things. So I was uh, speaking with one of my counterparts at um, LSEG yesterday about thoughts around DLT and using the Aurora platform as a an on-ramp or off-ramp in the future for fully digital or fully DLT transactions. So those sorts of conversations are ongoing all the time. They're, they're an excellent partner for us to have. Now, Aurora is also in production with DBS in Singapore. Now, DBS is a bank, not a, not a stock exchange. They must be using this in the primary debt markets, presumably in some different way. How are they using it compared to how LSEG is using it? So um, they're, they're using it as a both an internal workflow tool, but also as is almost a, a storefront where their clients who are corporate issuers of CDs and um, short dated debt effectively um, can come to them and the investors can say, yes, you know, I'd like, I'd like an exposure to this issue at this rate and you know, this tenor. And it makes the negotiation in that format very easy. So they're using it um, kind of in a hybrid workflow and shop window format. Now, Vic, you, you've obviously been with the company since the outset. You identified primary capital markets as, as a, a, a clear case of a, an industry which needed uh, digitization and automation. But here we are, I don't know, five or six years on, the bond markets don't seem to be in, in a great hurry to, to move on to uh, onto better system, despite all the work that you've done and the right back through those proofs of concept in, in the regulatory sandbox. What, what, what does that tell us about attitudes and incentives inside the bond markets that it's not, you know, biting off your hand to, or indeed the hand of your competitors to, 
to, to really improve things. What, what's really going on in the marketplace that makes adoption slow? If you talk from a technologist's perspective predominantly, um, I think that adoption of any new tech in any industry is always going to be difficult by large incumbents. Banking is no different. Banking is probably a little bit like capital markets, investment banks, probably a little bit behind some of the other industries like retail banking and other sectors. But there are still very, very similar challenges. It's a complex field, overlaps with law and regulation. So there's a lot of questions that need to be answered before a large incumbent bank or infrastructure firm is able to deploy new tech, let alone deploy something like a blockchain or wide governance over a blockchain. So it's quite complex, it takes time. Mm -hmm. I think on the other hand, if you look at what's happened during COVID, there's a wide agreement that the bond market actually worked quite well when the, when the window opened up, um, funding windows opened up, I think it was earlier this year and last year, uh, everyone was able to issue quite quickly and, and meet funding requirements. So there's also this question of, there's a lot of things that work quite well with the existing system. There's also a lot of things that can be greatly improved by tech. It just takes a bit of time for the alignment between those who are pushing new solutions, innovative solutions, and those who are the incumbents, understanding and adopting those. From my perspective as an outsider coming in and developing and deploying technology here, um, while I was in banking before, I wasn't in this specific space, I think the adoption is pretty much going um, you know, as well as you could hope for. I don't think this could have gone any quicker. I'm actually quite impressed by some of the um, developments over the last year or two, um, especially with some of the market infrastructure firms and, and their investments and their adoption or their testing of blockchain solutions. I think we'll see, I think we'll see maybe a more exponential uh, increase in the use of these technologies over the next five to 10 years and potentially a production, you know, production adoption um, shortly thereafter. There are companies like Six who um, created SDX, the digital exchange, and got that regulated separately and will start to do listing and trading of tokenized instruments there. So, you know, there are some that are ahead of others, um, but I think we'll see a widespread adoption over the coming years. A minute ago, Vic Scott mentioned one of the things that he really enjoys about working with LSEG is that they're always thinking about the next thing. What do you see from a technological point of view as the, as the future use cases for the work that you've, you've been doing? And I'm thinking here particularly of uh, Sandbox 4, where you did that equity capital markets project with LSEG, if memory serves. Uh, do you see the equity capital markets as a, as a future use case, or have you got other priorities before you get to that one? Um, equity is complex and, and quite different to debt. I'd say I think debt create a program and, and you can do multiple issuances from that. Whereas with equity, you kind of create the documents once, issue equity, and then it gets traded somewhere. Um, so I think for us, for the, for the foreseeable future, or at least for the next few years, we're going to really focus on debt and the complex debt instruments. As Scott was saying, moving into derivatives and structural products as well. There's a lot of work that can be done there. There's a lot of ideas we have around how to automate a lot of these activities. And we really want to focus on, on developing and deploying technology to banks, market infrastructure and issuers for them to really automate as much of this work as they can so that they can focus on more high value tasks rather than manual data entry and data exchange. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that we will see, especially from Nivora, we'll see a lot of more 
let's say, as the company grows and develops and, and moves further along in its life, especially under the guidance now of Scott, I think we're going to see more innovations coming out in different spaces. So, so what I can say right now on the blockchain front and all the other things we're working on around machine learning, et cetera, I'd say watch this space over the next few years because we have a lot of things under the hood that we've been cooking and we're just looking for the right people to, to come on board and help us to expand and, and to grow into these. Now, uh, Scott, how would you characterize uh, Naivori? You, you, you've joined relatively recently. What did you think you were joining? Were you joining a, a kind of new model financial market infrastructure or were you joining a collaborative network provider or were you joining a technology vendor or were you joining something completely different to that? What did you, how would you, what character would you ascribe to Naivori today? That, that's, that's interesting because I think my original attraction was it's it was almost a think tank you know um the background that, that vic and and avatar shares they're both academics right they're both phds in you know avatar and physics vic in mathematics um so certainly certainly things i can't touch um but it was fun because they think about things truly i, I would argue from an academic standpoint they, they get intrigued by a problem they want to solve the problem and they can go very deep into a problem and, and get, get very complex very quickly. So in many ways, when I first joined, it felt like I was joining a think tank for want of a better description. Mm -hmm. as, as I got to know them better, and as we spent a lot of time together talking about how you then commercialize all these things, I realized that what I'm really joining is a best of both. It's both a, a think tank because they are very forward thinking, but it's also very much an enterprise software firm. And the idea is that we want to build software and we want to build great software. Um, and that's that's part of the path that we're on, right? We're trying to get better at building software, at delivering it quicker, you know, faster iterations, because then that leads to more client features being added in real time. Um, but it's taking that mindset and combining it with the academic mindset. And that's really what I, I, I think I joined. And it certainly is what it feels like at the moment. Mm -hmm. What, what academics always lack is the commercial brain. Um, the academics come up with ideas and they can go down different rabbit holes to figure things out. But while ideation and coming up with ideas is good, <clears throat> without having an understanding of how to commercialize those ideas and really sell them, I think they miss a lot of value there. And, and so the commercial aspect and the, the ability to be able to productionize something and ship it out really also adds a lot of value to the the idea creation stage as well. And I think it's really important for not just Navora, but any tech company, tech startup, to have the best of both. You need people who are going to be thinking about things theoretically, but also others who are going to think, okay, now that you've got this idea, how does it relate to the real world? How can we make money from this? How is it going to solve people's problems? I think that's really important. Now, I have one last question for which I'd like a view from, from each of you, in fact. Navura, as we've discussed this afternoon, has been a pioneer. You were early into blockchain. You did these proofs of concept. You proved the technology could work within a regulated environment. But then you've also had this, this pragmatic pivot uh, more towards technology, which potential clients can actually use in their business today to make things cheaper, better, faster, less risky. Can I ask each of you how quickly you think the conventional securities markets, and I mean to include equity here as well as, as, well as fixed income, how quickly do you think uh, the conventional fixed income and equity markets will be displaced by tokenization, by security tokens? Vic, perhaps you could give me your guess first. Um, 
I think I can I can speak maybe partly from the Isahat on. I think there's you know there's a real appreciation from especially infrastructure firms. Uh, there's an appreciation for where tokenization could go, um, and they're really seriously thinking about not only how they can adopt it, but how they can potentially even take it to the next level. Um, and I think now that we're seeing, we've seen banks and issuers over the last few years experiment with tokenized issuances, largely without the infrastructure firms participating. Now we're beginning to see the adoption by the infrastructure firms. I think we're going to see serious work being done in this space over the next five to 10 years. I don't think it will come immediately, but I think it will happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it will happen probably across the board. I still think debt is an easier one to work with, um, but I think we'll see equity and debt both being tokenized, let's say, um, and traded uh, quite frequently on blockchains. And, and you'll also see an adoption of probably of DeFi over the next 10 years. I think that's the next big thing. Mm -hmm. Scott, what's your view? You, you, you've heard Vic say that and there you are, you're, you're in the, the primary debt markets. It's, it's the primary market where tokenization is going to be driven from. What's your best guess as to how soon we'll be looking at uh, massive uh, mass adoption of security tokenization? So I, I, t I tend to be um, a little old fashioned. I think it will take a lot of time. Um, I, I, think, I think you'll begin to see, you'll see it more um, in small snippets perhaps. And it's certainly no sooner than five years out in my opinion, but I think you have to begin to prepare for it, um, which is also what's interesting, right, about software development today is that it becomes very modular. So you can actually bolt on things without worrying about denigrating the old and making it all work well together. So I think it's it's a five to 10 year time horizon. Um, and I think, you know, something you alluded to earlier, Dominic, is the idea that certainly um, DLT and blockchain in and of itself doesn't yet lend itself to high frequency transactions. So in that sense, equities definitely and, and FX need to sit on the sidelines for a little while longer, which is why I think Vic and Aftar were particularly smart to look at fixed income because it truly is the spot, right? Most bonds trade actively for the first seven to 10 days after issuance and then trade episodically after that. Mm -hmm. So I, we, when we see the development, it will become first in primary and then secondary debt and then equities and then FX, I suspect. But as I say, I think that's a five to 10 year horizon, um, certainly in my opinion. Scott Eaton and Vic Aralchandran of Nivora, thank you both very much. Thank you. Dan.